From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. There's no more watching your food being cooked. There's no more hanging out with the Jamaican. It's, <laughs> it's just, hi, wagwan, everything good. See you next time. This week on our show, we visit with Tanisha Henline, chef and owner of Top Shotta Jerk Chicken in Bloomington about running a food truck during a pandemic, and how cooking traditional food connects her with her ancestors. We have stories from Harvest Public Media's series on how food insecurity in the U.S. has been heightened by COVID-19, and Josephine McGravy brings us the final installment in her series with Joe O'Connell on the Oregon fishing industry. That's all coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Earthies is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University was built. Welcome to Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. Renee Reed has the Earth Eats news. Hello, Renee. Hello, Kate. We've got stories from Chad Bouchard and Harvest Public Media. Shoppers looking for their favorite cuts of meat should soon see plenty of it. Beef and pork production are nearly back to pre-pandemic levels after disruptions during the spring when outbreaks of COVID-19 sent workers home and meat plants reduced production. That left farmers, ranchers, and feedlots with animals on site longer than expected and reduced the supply of fresh beef and pork. Oklahoma State University livestock economist Daryl Pill says very little beef cattle remains backed up. It's taken uh, the rest of the summer and here into the fall to sort of catch up, if you will. I think we are largely caught up at this point. The indications are that we have largely addressed the backlog. Most backlog pigs also made it to market. Despite fears that hundreds of thousands of hogs would be euthanized and never reached the food supply, the actual numbers were much lower than most estimates. Farmers will receive more coronavirus relief dollars from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But as Harvest Public Media's Dana Cronin reports, not all of the initial relief package has been doled out yet. President Trump announced the additional relief at a campaign rally in Wisconsin, a key battleground state. The second round of payments will total about $14 billion and comes on the heels of the first round of ag relief through the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, which still has six billion unpaid dollars in the pot. Jonathan Coppice is an ag analyst with the University of Illinois. So yeah, just under half of it is probably just repurposing the the funds that were not spent uh, in the previous program. I think that's that's a fair estimate given what little we know about it at this point in time. In a statement, a USDA spokesperson said they are still processing applications from round one and they don't know how much will be left when they're done. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. As wildfires continue to rage across millions of acres in western states and smoke hangs over devastated communities, farm workers continue to work the harvest season. Workers face risk of exposure to heat, smoke, and stubbornly high rates of new coronavirus cases. Health researchers warn that smoke causes or worsens a list of medical ailments from respiratory and cardiovascular disease to diabetes. 
Smoke from this year's western wildfires has caused soaring pollution levels that far exceed those considered safe by Environmental Protection Agency standards. An EPA Air Quality Index, or AQI, usually measures from zero to about 500, with up to 100 considered to be generally safe. Under California regulations, employers must provide workers with respirators like N95 masks if the level is over 150. Areas of Oregon near Portland on September 17 registered 380, considered to be a level hazardous enough that everyone should avoid going outside. The AQI topped 300 on some of the worst days across the West Coast in recent weeks. In Central California near Fresno, levels have registered a whopping 780. Farm labor activists warn that the combination of wildfire smoke and coronavirus will amplify infection rates and death tolls among workers, half of whom are undocumented or migrants, who lack legal protection and live in crowded housing conditions. Many farm workers have pre-existing health conditions due to low socioeconomic status, lacking health care, and access to services. One farm worker who had migrated from Oaxaca, Mexico, and did not want to use his name due to his immigration status, told PRI's The World that smoke had affected his health while picking almonds in Fresno without protection. He complained of having difficulty sleeping due to sore throat, coughing, and eye irritation. After learning that there was an anonymous Spanish-English tip line for labor law violations in California, the man said that he would not call the number for fear of it getting traced back to him. Environmental health experts are calling for more enforcement of California safety laws, requiring employers to offer N95 masks in poor air quality and limiting time outdoors in extreme heat. California's Occupational Safety and Health Administration told the world that the agency only has 200 field enforcement officers to inspect 200,000 workplaces across the state that could be affected by smoke. In a California poll this summer, United Farm Workers found that 84% of the workers asked had not received N95 masks by their employers. Thanks to Chad Pichard and Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer and Dana Cronin for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Thank you, Renee. One final note about our news team. Taylor Killow has been bringing us news reports for many years, first here at WFIU and then from Louisville, Kentucky. Sadly, she had to say goodbye to Earth Eats recently as she enters a graduate program in journalism. We hope to hear from her again on the show in the future, perhaps in a new capacity. And in the meantime, thank you, Taylor. We will miss you, and we wish you all the best. After COVID-19 arrived in small towns, rural leaders were faced with a new challenge, getting food to hungry families safely. In one small Nebraska town, Harvest Public Media's Christina Stella reports they've had to find new ways to feed families in need. Lexington, Nebraska, population 11,000, isn't exactly used to traffic. 
But over the past few months, a line of cars has been forming like clockwork every Thursday morning since June. They're headed toward a white tent outside St. Anne's Parish in the hopes of picking up a USDA Farmers to Families food box. It's awesome. They get one box of produce, a box of dairy. Um, sometimes we get milk and then one box of proteins. And it's different every week. That's Michaela Kopp of the Lexington Community Foundation. She stands in the scorching August heat, directing cars to the tent where massed volunteers pack boxes. Most weeks, she says, hundreds of boxes of food are gone in an hour. Sometimes it's lined up all the way to Highway 30. So there is definitely a need, and it has increased since COVID, for sure. Like many rural areas, food insecurity is a chronic problem in Lexington, where 16% of residents live below the poverty line. The town has a food pantry. Martha Draskovic's managed it as a one-woman operation for 10 years. On a break from moving boxes, she recalls how COVID-19 gave her a surge in demand. It became clear when my shelf started going empty. <laughs> so we kind of had to uh, do a new game plan. Many families rely on their kids getting two meals a day at school. Losing that, coupled with a sudden increase in unemployment, was the perfect storm. People who didn't typically use the pantry, or even nutrition programs like SNAP, were suddenly in need. They were over income at one point, so they weren't eligible for the um, benefit. But once they were home for two to three weeks, I mean, they were still out of income, but yet no food. Empty shelves weren't her only hurdle. At the time, supply chains nationwide were faltering. Finding bulk pantry staples like pasta and peanut butter was a struggle. I kind of had my director going to different stores, doing online shopping, picking up for me in Grand Island. Tammy Jeffs at the Community Action Partnership of Mid-Nebraska says it was hard to stay afloat without hurting the rest of the town. In a rural area, the grocery might restock just once a week. We were aware that, you know, if we go in and buy 40 packs of something and all the grocery store is getting is 50 packs, you've now just sent everybody to your pantry because you bought everything. So, <laughs> Plus, once they found the food, they had to figure out how to get it to people who couldn't come to the pantry. Some of those people were seniors. Others were workers at the local Tyson meatpacking plant who were quarantined without a way to feed themselves. So Draskovic started delivering. At first, it was just myself. We were just doing that, and then I kind of, you know, recruited other people to start coming in and just helping. When it got around town that the pantry was struggling, residents made sure it was stocked. We started getting different, you know, financial donations, items. Businesses started reaching out, and, you know, now we kind of have a backstock, so we're kind of prepared to see if we get that second roundabout. Orthman Manufacturing, an agricultural equipment company, is one of the local companies that's helped distribute food. Scott McKelvey is the local plant manager. He says strong community ties have made all the difference in Lexington. He called a friend at the Rotary Club to bring Hot Meals USA to town, serving 18,000 meals since April. It doesn't matter if somebody drives up in a 2017 Cadillac decked out to the nines. Nobody cares because you don't know what's going on with that family. McKelvey says these kinds of mutual aid networks give him hope. Lately, he's needed it. With everything else that's going on in the United States right now, this is a feel-good moment. And it's not just in the Midwest. There's these moments that are going on all over the country to help feed families in need. He makes his way back under the tent. Most of the boxes are gone. McKelvey and the other volunteers start loading up their cars. 
and figuring out where to deliver the extra food. It doesn't take them long to make a plan. Christina Stella, Harvest Public Media. That story is part two in a series from Harvest Public Media, taking a deeper look at how food insecurity in the U.S. has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Stay tuned for part three in the series on how a group in Oklahoma is helping farmers get excess food to those who need it most through gleaning. That's coming up later in the show. Stay with us. Maybe it was a friend on Facebook bragging on their tasty takeout meal on a Friday night. Perhaps it was the aroma of spicy meats on a grill, the smoke from a barbecue wafting through the air as you rode your bike on 4th Street downtown one night around dinner time. You caught a flash of a bright green and yellow food truck out of the corner of your eye, but kept pedaling home. Maybe you've heard of Top Shot of Jerk Chicken. Maybe you've even tried their food. Either way, now you have the chance to hear from the owner of this unique food truck on the streets of Bloomington, Indiana. My name is Tanisha Henlein. I am the owner of Top Shutter Jerk Chicken, an authentic Jamaican food truck here in Bloomington, Indiana. I met up with Tanisha in a city park on 3rd Street one morning to talk about her food and the story behind her business. On the food truck, I make traditional Jamaican rice and peas which in Jamaica we call peas, peas um, beans, we call the beans peas. But here it's peas that's green. That's what people would think the rice and peas is, but it's actually kidney beans with white rice. And traditionally we make that on Sundays. It's really fancy, so I make that every day. I also make jerk chicken tacos. In Jamaica, I've never had a taco, but when I came here, I realized that everyone loves tacos from a food truck. So I do that, and then I do the traditional jerk chicken. In Jamaica, it's chopped up, but I leave it on the bone. Traditionally, it's spicy, but I make my jerk sauce from scratch, the marinade from scratch, and it's on the side. It's not spicy at all, just a hit of flavor. Every eat you eat it, you love the food. It's very delicious. I also do my own coleslaw that I call the shatter slaw. I also have slices of potato bread. And sometimes I do specials, oxtail, curry goat, brown stew chicken, curry chicken. And I post that on my Facebook page anytime I have those. I asked Tanisha why she left the meat on the bone, even though it's not traditional. You know, actually, it's because of, that's what Americans prefer. And I'm trying to reach out to Americans. That's the target audience that I'm trying to reach out to. So I leave it on the bone. But if you want it chopped, I will gladly chop it for you. If you want that experience of it being chopped up and me putting on your sauce and it's been spicy from the get-go, I'm more than happy to do that. So it would be on the grill hold. I'll season it in pieces, then after it's done, I, I chop it up with a, with a cleaver, put it in a file paper, put on um, ketchups, the sauces on there, and then hand it to you. So I get the, the chicken fresh and I marinate it with the sauces and the spices that I make from scratch that's traditional to my homeland and I marinate it and then we cook it on the grill. And it's very healthy as well. The thing about jerk is that we have a dry rub that's made of our traditional spices. And usually you do that at home, 
if it's just the family, you don't want to do it too fancy, you use your dry rub. Then you have a wet rub. And if that's for commercial use, you're trying to do something a bit more fancy, you use your wet rub on there. But at Top Shada, I use both the dry rub and the wet rub. And you have to poke holes in the chicken. You have to get the, the seasoning underneath the meat. And that is also a process of the jerk chicken. That's how my ancestors actually did it. It's all fresh ingredients. I have onions, garlic, because you have to use peppers and stuff like that, because that's healthy too. And then I have dry rubs, which is I use over 30 mixes of dry rubs into one to make that into my jerk. And then I have another set of the wet rub, which is the onions, the escalions, the tomatoes, and then I have allspice. A Jamaican is no Jamaican food without allspice. And you have that into your rub, plus a whole lot of other stuff. Vegetarians, don't worry. Top Shada has something for you. Sometimes I have customers who don't eat meat. The rice and peas is for vegetarians. There's no broth in there. I make, I make the water taste delicious and put the rice in there with the peas and everything. There's nothing that a vegetarian would be, you know, like, oh, no, I don't want that. Then the tacos, I don't have to put the chicken in there because the tacos come with shredded cabbage, a slice of pear. And in Jamaica, an avocado, we call that a pear. And, but we know that an, a pear is, here is an American pear. So it's a slice of avocado, some chicken usually, but then I don't have to put the chicken in, some cabbage. I have tomatoes, onion, escalions, and sweet peppers, and also the sauce. And the sauce has nothing that's not friendly to vegetarian in it. And I also have a burrito that I could just not put any meat in. It has a coleslaw, it has tomatoes, onion, cheese, sour cream, the rice and peas, and that's all in a wrap. Tanisha shared her understanding of the origins of the jerk tradition in Jamaica. In the 1650s, they were, they were named Maroons. Those are my ancestors. They're called the Maroons. They were the first escaped slaves from Jamaica. They were on the plantations when the Spaniards captured them. And then the British took over in 1655. And on that plantation, they were like, hold on, we don't want to do this anymore. We're not going to be slaves. Enough is enough, and we're going to fight for our freedom. So they escaped, they went into the mountains. The other name for a maroon is a mountaineer. They went up in the mountains and they were being followed. So they had to come up with a way, how are we gonna eat without being captured? So they decided we can make the herbs of the earth, all the seasoning, the dry rubs, we're gonna mix that into a spice. We're gonna kill the boar, the pig. That's the first thing that was jerked in Jamaica. We're gonna kill the boar, we're gonna dig a hole in the ground and they would put pimento wood, that's also a native of Jamaica, allspice, into the ground, season the meat, cover it with more pimento wood, then put dry leaves on top, and that would smother the smoke. So that's also smoking it, jerking it underneath, and the British soldiers can tell that there's actually a fire going on. So that's where it actually came from. And what about the word jerk? At first, I can remember in history class, 
that the Tanos and those were the first settlers before Christopher Columbus. They were the first one there, the Tanos and the Arawaks. Now what they used to do, they would have the same spice, but they would dry the meat. So it's kind of like the jerky. But then when the Maroons got a hold of the recipe, they were like, we don't like this part. We want it a bit more juicy, a bit more flavorful, a bit more hearty, that if we eat a piece of meat, we'll actually can hold us within these war times. So they added a bit more flavor and other seasonings that created the wet rub and the dry rub for the jerk. It is grilled and smoked at the same time. And it's not just, it's not like barbecue. You act, it's a whole process and every time I do it, it's such pride. My husband, Eli, I actually met him the way, the way that I got to come here in Jamaica. I feel like I have to say this because I wouldn't be here with this food truck had I not met him. So I was in Jamaica six years ago. I lived there and I met him on vacation and he flirted with me the entire time. But I was just like, oh, I'm not too sure. They stayed connected after he returned to Bloomington. Eli invited her to visit, they fell in love, married, and Tanisha moved to Bloomington. But while I loved being here, the food was not the same, and it was a big culture shock for me, and I was very depressed. So in order to stay here and still be happy, I had to find a way to cook. And if I'm cooking all the time, and I'm enjoying this good food, I feel like I should share it. I'm, I would be selfish for keeping on to this good food all for myself. While Tanisha did not cook professionally in Jamaica, she certainly had experience in the kitchen. I grew up extremely poor. I didn't have plumbing. I used candles to study for my schoolwork. So I didn't have the luxury of going out to eat. You had to buy the chicken back, the chicken neck, the worst part of the chicken, and you had to make that into something that's delicious that you can eat. So even in Jamaica, I always had to cook. Because if I don't cook, I don't eat. And so I've always had a strong connection to food, but coming here, it, it got even stronger because I couldn't get the things that I really wanted. But now that I've had the food truck and I'm cooking what I love and things that I couldn't even afford in Jamaica, like oxtail, I dreamt of eating oxtail. I remember my friend, I asked her for some of her gravy just to see what it tasted like. And now being able to buy that and cook that and share it to others, it makes me so happy. And I just have to thank the community for just accepting me for who I am and for what I am doing. I've been in business this year, now would be my third full year. I actually started two and a half years ago when it was in the winter and it was so cold. I couldn't manage the cold, I still can't. But I was like, oh well, you know, even though it's cold out there, I wanted to start. As soon as I was up and running and I got certified by the city, I just wanted to get out there to start sharing my culture. So this year will actually be in winter, my third full year. 
Well, as a food truck, any restaurant, you have to have a commissary, and that's One World Commissary, which shout out to One World Commissary. We have a commissary there. I keep my dry goods there. On the truck, I try to do as much as I can before the, the, like the day off. I have an hour that I start my prepping because we prep every day fresh, no, no frozen food. So that's how I do it. We are closed on Sundays, Mondays and Tuesdays. And then Wednesdays, I do lunch on the west side at Dirt Sports. And then Thursday, Fridays and Saturday, I am on 3rd and College across from Atlas. And I have permission to be there at 5. So I get there at 5, I do my prepping, and then I can serve by 6. And then that's weather permitting because of the charcoal grill. I have it pulled on behind the food truck. So if it's raining, I can't really be out there in the rain because the grill, once though it gets wet and the charcoal, it's not possible. So I post every morning if I'll be out that way. Tanisha posts her location and any specials of the day on Top Shada's Facebook page and on Instagram. Regulars know to check there first. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're speaking with Tanisha Henline of Top Shada Jerk Chicken in Bloomington, Indiana. After a short break, we'll hear how Tanisha adapted to the COVID-19 restrictions and what it means to her to share food in the community. Stay with us. sure you never miss an episode subscribe to our podcast it's the same great stories in your podcast feed just search for earth eats wherever you listen to podcasts while you're there please leave us a review it means a lot to us and it helps other people find us Welcome back. You're listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. We're talking with Tanisha Henline. She's the owner and chef at Top Shotta Jerk Chicken and Cuisine. It's a food truck here in Bloomington, Indiana. With everything that the restaurant industry has been through since widespread shutdown orders started in March of this year, I asked Tanisha what adjustments she has had to make to comply with the COVID-19 restrictions. In the past, I loved the fact that my customers could come to the truck, talk with me while their chicken is being grilled right there. They could see their chicken. I would sometimes ask them which pieces they would like. You choose your piece of meat. You see it come off fresh off the grill. I'm there fixing your food. We'll talk a little more and then you leave. Some people would like to eat there and tell me how good the food is, which I love. But now with the COVID and the pandemic, I have to encourage pre-ordering. So once I post, I get calls for orders, and then I get there, I start doing my prep, then I start cooking, and they would just have to pick up their food and leave. There's no more watching your food being cooked. There's no more hanging out with the Jamaican. It's, <laughs> it's just, hi, wagwan, everything good. See you next time. Which, it's still nice, but I miss people being able to watch their chicken on the grill. Yeah, things have changed drastically. Now, I mean, before I used to 
give out hand sanitizer wipes i used to do that before because i i like doing that that's a good thing for a, a restaurant to do but then now i have to ensure that because my husband helps me on the truck he drives it for me and he helps me with the charcoal grill so we have to give hand sanitizer to everyone once they touch their money we got to make sure we're wiping all the surfaces which i used to do before but no it's even more strenuous um, things that you have to do to ensure that you are in accordance with the law, with what you have to do right now. Tanisha prefers that customers call first to pre-order. I asked if walk-up ordering is possible. Say, if you were walking by, caught a whiff of the sizzling seasoned meats from the grill. Yes, sometimes I can't really tell if I'll, be, if I'll have a busy day or not. Sometimes it's busy, sometimes it's not. Some days you can walk up and right away I can serve you. Other days I do have the chicken, but I can't serve you yet because I have so many pre-orders. So you can always walk up to the truck and order, but I can't guarantee that I'll be able to serve you immediately. I wondered if jerk chicken is something that you would normally find served as street food in Jamaica. This is a popular, one of the most popular street foods in Jamaica. Anywhere on the street, there's a jerk man, and usually they're there in the evenings, not in the mornings. They're usually there for lunch, for dinner, and then late night when the parties are going on, two, three o'clock in the morning, if you're leaving a party, he's right out there with his soup, with his jerk. You're so hungry, it smells so good, you just have to get some food. It's, it's a whole tradition for us. The jerk chicken man, when you go to the, the club or when you're on the street, He's just there with his little pan, smelling up the whole place with his, with his aroma of food. You go there, you buy food, you talk to him. It's a whole social business, and that's what Negril, where I'm from in Jamaica, is actually known for. The, our beaches, the jerk chicken man just there on the street. But I wanted to bring that, but I couldn't bring it here because of the laws. So I had to get an entire food truck. I couldn't just have the pan how it is back home. Here on Earth Eats, we've interviewed entrepreneurs in the food world, and I am always curious to hear what it is that drives them to start their own business. I personally find the idea terrifying. Oh, it's nerve-wracking. You know, back home in Jamaica, because things was rough, I always had to work and pay bills, and I was like, well, I would love to be something more one day but I don't see it materializing yet, so I'm just going to work towards whatever may come. After moving to Bloomington, Tanisha worked a couple of desk jobs, but she wasn't happy. She was missing her culture. She was missing her food. She started to find the ingredients to make her favorite dishes at home, and she began to wonder if she could start cooking for others. So I was like, well, hmm, if I can get the food that I like from home and I can cook it, and I've not been happy with the working relationships that I've put myself in here, then I'm, I can do this. And I spoke to my husband about it, and he's like, well, I've been eating your food for a while, and yes, it's good, and I wouldn't just say that because you're my wife. It's really good, so I will back you 100%. And just having his support, knowing that he believes that I can do it, just made me want to do it even more. When I tried to get the food here, even when I went out of state, I knew I could do better. And I'm not trying to knock anyone's business. I'll big up to all Jamaicans who are trying to make something big out there. But I've tried it and I was like, I can do better, you know? And Bloomington needs this. They have a, Bloomington has a lot of, of different type of people, a lot of ethnicity here, but I was just like, there's no Jamaican. 
there's different stuff that I've tried, but it's not Jamaican. And I was like, you know what? I can do it. And I feel like the community would embrace that too, and they have, which I am grateful for. I asked if it was just her and Eli running the business, or did she have other employees? Yes, it's just the two of us. I feel like I can't control my product once somebody else is in charge. And I like being able, it's from me, this is from my heart, and it's to you, straight from me. And I feel like if I get anybody else, they won't care as much as I do. Because this is my culture, this is the way I was grown, this is how I was raised. So how has business been? You know, to be honest, I would say that I slow and steady win the race. I, people are slowly hearing about me. And the good thing is that once you've had the food once, I have had so many people that once I'm seeing them the next day and the next day. And a return face is always good. But now that more people hearing about me, it's slowly more now picking up. Yeah, yeah because yeah. back then nobody knew that I was even out. Nobody knew, so I'm slow. I feel like this is the first year that more of the Bloomington community even know that there's a Jamaican food truck in town. I asked Tanisha to reflect on what sharing food means to her. For me, food first you, you eat with your eyes. So for me, when I'm plating my food, I feel a sense of pride because my ancestors, the Maroons, what they did they had to hide and do it. And because of them, I am free today to share it across the world. As a Jamaican being in Indiana, to me, it's a huge deal. We, we as Jamaicans, we're small, but we're everywhere, sharing our culture, making people happy. When I have a customer who, I think he's eight years old, and he saves his allowance that he gets on a weekly basis to come to the food truck and buy his family food. And he waves his $20 and I run out there and I hug him and I'm so happy that you love the food. And he says, the food is amazing. I've had kids, babies told me that the food is so good. It makes me happy. It makes me extremely happy because I do it with a sense of pride. And if I wouldn't eat it, then I'm not serving it. And I cook it to the best of my ability that if my ancestors are anywhere watching me, they're going to say, well done, my child. You're doing the right thing. And I have to have a sense of pride anytime when I do this. Every time I go on that truck, she's, her name is Nanny of the Maroons. She, the name of the truck is actually one of her heroines, the Nanny of the Maroons. She led the Morant Bay Rebellion. She led a lot of the wars that happened between the British that eventually they had to sign a treaty with us because we were not gonna remain slaves anymore. And every time I poke a piece of chicken, I remember that if it weren't for them being brave enough to stand up for years and shedding their blood, I can't do this. I wouldn't be able to be here. And I'm just happy that the community accepts me and they have been so loving towards me. Everybody has been so nice. And I just, I couldn't wish it any better to be in a community that's so diverse and everybody's so loving. I hadn't had a bad experience being in Bloomington. I've had great encounters with people. Everybody loves me. <laughs> you know, it's a Jamaican food truck. The food is very good. I couldn't let Tanisha go without asking her about the name of her business, Top Shotta. So if you're a Top Shotta, 
you're a hustler you're a go-getter nobody messes with you you're all about the benjamins you're just trying to hustle and get your slice of the cake you're a top shatter okay. yep and you're the best at what i do and i'm a top shatter at jerking chicken okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're a boss you're a boss at what you do and people know they respect you for that and a boss she is that was Tanisha Henline, owner and chef of Top Shotta Jerk Chicken and Cuisine, a food truck found on the streets of Bloomington, Indiana. Check the Earth Eats website for details on Top Shotta's menu and location. EarthEats.org. COVID-19 has made it more difficult for farmers to sell produce from farmers markets to restaurants, leaving food in the field. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports on how one group in Oklahoma is helping farmers get excess food off the farm and to those who need it most. While coronavirus has hampered farmers this year, usually it's the weather that threatens crops. Last year, Joe Tierney's farm was in trouble. Heavy rain was causing flooding all along the Arkansas River. Before he knew it, the water from the nearby creek was creeping forward. There's really not anything you can do except just watch it. Tierney had to evacuate the farm, leaving behind his field full of vegetables. That's when he called for help. Katie Plohockey is visiting the farm again. She remembers looking at the fields in jeopardy. Just romaine lettuce the size of my torso <laughs> that was growing and and just all of these rows and to know that it was going to be underwater in two days and all of that would gonna, was going to be ruined. Plohockey founded the Health Community Store Initiative, an effort to bring fresh produce to food deserts in Tulsa. The mission was simple. Rescue as many cabbages as possible and bring them to those in need before all the leafy goods were underwater. You know, I went and actually leased a, a U-Haul truck just so I could, you know, get it all because time was of the essence. Plohockey brought back four truckloads of cabbage and lettuce to the group's mobile grocery store. That cabbage rescue mission is part of Hands to Harvest. It aims to reduce food waste by getting volunteers to pick the excess food off the field and not just during disasters. It's a practice called gleaning. The tradition goes back to biblical times. There are similar programs all over the country. Plohockey says farmers often recognize there's extra food in the fields, but getting it off the farm can be difficult. The farmers don't have the manpower or the time to load it up and deliver it somewhere. And so there, there's a missing link in between the farm and the pantries or the food banks or the schools or whoever needs that food. And so that's what we were trying to do is just fill in that gap a little bit. Sean Peterson founded the Association of Gleaning Organizations. He says the COVID-19 pandemic isn't a crisis for them, but now there's a lot more food to pick up. There's so much more produce because of disruptions in the systems, whether it's the restaurants that were closed that the small-scale farmer can't sell to now, or you know, schools that were closed that the large-scale farmer can't sell to. Excess food on the farm is actually pretty common, even during normal times. Research from Santa Clara University estimates that about a third of crops grown on U.S. farms go unharvested. Greg Baker is a professor at Santa Clara University. He says farmers often will only let gleaners into the field after the very last harvest. They can't afford to have uh, someone who is not well-trained come into their field and do something wrong, you know, like not wash their hands after using the toilet, 
and then possibly, you know, contaminate an entire field. Gleaning isn't the only strategy Plohockey is using to combat food waste while keeping people fed. When the Tulsa farmer's market closed, she says she was buying produce directly from the farmers. That food went to her program's COVID-19 grocery relief program. It's just making that connection between, you know, who's growing the food and who's, who's needing the food because there should be no one in the United States that's, that should be food insecure. While gleaning won't solve food insecurity, Plohockey says it's one way to get fresh food to people who need it. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. That was part three in a series from Harvest Public Media, taking a deeper look at how food insecurity in the U.S. has been heightened by the pandemic. Listen for the final installments in this series in coming weeks here on Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Workers in Oregon's commercial fishing industry share a close-knit culture. Now they're trying to imagine how regional tourism fits into that community. This story from producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell was produced based on original field research for the Oregon Folklife Network. The men were after me something awful after I won the arm wrestling championship. Swapping stories about work and play is an Oregon fishing industry tradition. By then, the bar is packed. It was after a halibut opener. There's 300 people in there. Sarah Scamzer is a net maker in Newport. I went and signed up, weighed in at the unlimited weight division, sat back down. My name got called, and there's Shirley, the arm wrestling champion of four years. And she just grabs a hold of me and is just turning colors and grunting, and I'm holding steady, and then I realize I have not tried yet, and I slammed her right down. Thank you very much. Some poets and musicians near the coast have elevated commercial fishing lore to an art form. The string band Brownsmead Flats are performing at a winery in the town of Nehalem. It isn't very far to Astoria's bar, but a very long journey it can be. It can start at the mountain. We sort of like to refer ourselves as, as crabgrass, sort of bluegrassy sound, you know, but with a, a maritime flavor. In our grandfather's day, when they rode all night to fish in the morning and live. My name is Ned Heavenrich. And I live in Brownsmead. My name is Dan Sutherland, and I also live in Brownsmead. Brownsmead, Oregon. Uh, there's Ray Rihala, who plays banjo, and then uh, John Fenton, our bass player, Larry Moore, uh, mandolin player. Larry Moore, do you want to join in on this? When they sing about Astoria's bar, they're not talking about a pub, but rather the intimidating waters where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Oh, here's Hold On, if I could do that one. The song was written by somebody just across the river. Uh, Mary Garvey, I live in Long Beach, Washington now. I've lived here about 18 years. I, I don't think of myself as a performer. I guess I've written enough songs I could say I'm a songwriter. Destination, 
I could do the destination. That's that's Alaska. That, I was saying that official poets, and it turns out that... For both Mary Garvey and Brownsmead Flats, singing about the region is essential. I think it's very important to, if you can, write about specific people, specific events, communities. We like to do a lot of songs about living on the coast or near the coast. And my stuff sort of does that by accident. I don't set out to do it. You know, it's just what this area is, you know. Yeah. You, you write about where you live. So I, I think, you know, there's some, like I said, there's something you could sort of tap into. You know, maybe if, we look, if it's in Wisconsin, you'd write about cows and milk, I don't know, and cheese. <laughs> and, and here you write about fish and, and water and trees and the rain. Both artists are mainstays at the Fisher Poets Gathering, an annual event held by and for insiders. Pretty much everyone on stage at the gathering is or has been a commercial fisher. In Astoria, the Fisher Poets Gathering would ask for some tune to be maybe oriented to be more maritime, or did you have something to do with the fishing industry? Of course, yeah. Ray and, mm-hmm. yeah. and Ned's been a fisherman. Ray probably was kind of the first person to get into that. His father was a gillnet fisherman on the Columbia River for many, many years, and he grew up in that tradition. And uh, so he fished with his, his dad, and then he was a fish buyer. You know, he had, he had a lot of stories to tell about. Kate Gable did a really good job singing this on a CD. Hold on, hold on, I'm frightfully concerned. Hold on, hold on, there's news that we have learned. Hold on, hold on, there's a boat that's overturned. The Coast Guard. Mary Garvey never made her living on the water, but her songs help commemorate events in the community. Hold on, it's a true story. It was right after Christmas, and somebody started to go down. He had in his pocket a new cell phone that someone had given him. He's in the water. All of a sudden he remembers his phone. He gets the phone out and he gets hold of, I guess, the Coast Guard or somebody, but they didn't know where he was. The water's cold enough to freeze. The Coast Guard is coming. And he gave a few descriptors, and I guess the community somehow said, well, he must be near here. They went circling around looking for him, and with his very last wave, he was underwater totally. His very last wave, I've heard. He waved to him, and they saw him. It was getting, I think it was getting dark. And this one happened so close to Fisher Poets. Sometimes if there's a time urgency, I might because I knew it should be sung at Fisher Poets because they actually, some of them, I don't know if they knew the people, but they knew the boat and they knew the place. Amazing rescue, amazing. Are we ready? Some of the songs by Brownsmead Flats address transitions taking place on the coast. This is a song we wrote for the tourists. We've changed in, since we've been here yeah. from an industrial economy to a tourist economy, yeah. which has benefited us a lot. More venues, yeah. uh, restaurants and stuff like that have sprung up, and uh, there are more festivals. You know, it's a little bit of a, an irony, but it, you know, you've replaced one kind of industry with another, and it's important how it's done. <laughs> You know, so timber, fishing, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that is what I think people consider the source of a place. Like, can you have both? It would be nice to have both (laughs) sustainable everything. 
Increasingly, fishers and other workers share what they do with curious visitors. I see tourists just lining the docks, and they all have this just far away look in their eyes like, I could do it. I could, I could fish. I could go out there. You know, they just all are, it's just an enamor. It's something, I think, within all of us because of the fact that we're made of seawater. Sarah Scamzer has made her fishing net workshop a go-to spot for educational events and tuna barbecues. We do a lot of workshops with lay people and marine biologist students. And the guys working on the nets just fascinates people. And then we'll have excluders out in the parking lot to show them the different types and and just to inform them that the, because the fishermen are busy, they never tell their own stories. So we're kind of the in-between. COVID-19 precautions mean that the social life around commercial fishing is on hold. Brownsmead Flats, their last gig was at the Fisher Poets Gathering back in February. But when they take the stage again, they'll be back to doing what they do best, bridging the worlds of work and play in coastal Oregon. Well, I'll leave Lily and I'll be a sailor. Way, hey, bully in the alley. I'll leave Lily and ship aboard a whaler. Bully down a ship bow now. So help me, boys, I'm bully in the alley. Way, hey, This story by producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell features the voices of Oregon-based commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Have you found us on Twitter? Follow at EarthEats to stay up to date on food and farming news, seasonal recipes, food justice stories, and so much more. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at EarthEats. We even have a YouTube channel, and there's a brand new video produced by Peyton Novolock featuring me in my home kitchen making savory hand pies from scratch. Find that on the EarthEats YouTube channel or on our Facebook page. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. EarthEats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Tanisha Henline and Joe O'Connell. Thank you.